I have probed from three sides for the surest way in. I have seen enough to make any risk worthwhile in order to see more, and our story, when we return from the next expedition, may thrill the world. These are the words of Colonel Percy Harrison Fawcett, and they're emblazoned upon the cover of a magnificent book called Brazil That Never Was by A.J. Lease. I'm Kean, and this is White Atlantic Weird, the Irish Fortean show that's critical but never cynical. You join us on part four of our Fawcett-a-thon, our epic four-part series of episodes all about the explorer Percy Harrison Fawcett. Hopefully this is going to be the last episode because it is titled Never Say Fawcett Again. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. Of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. Hi, folks, Kian here. Now, not far from the cabin in the woods where I usually record, there is a railway track that goes through the woods and a little bit of a stream and right next to it. And I like to sit down next to it sometimes of an evening in the summer and when it's warm enough, when it's dry enough, and look at the stars and do a bit of chatting about mysteries and strange things. It's been a long time since I've sat here. I think maybe two or three years since I've done an episode sitting here talking to Chris Joyce about alien greys or something similar back in, I don't know, 2018 or 19, perhaps. That's what my memory says. Anyway, this time we're here to enjoy a summer's evening and talk about my boy Percy Harrison Fawcett. So, like I said before, the theme... This is part four. We've already talked about David Grant's book, um, The Lost City of Zed, which is probably where most people know about Fawcett from and the movie um, of that book. We spent two episodes talking about Fawcett's own writing, or was it, as we'll, we'll get to, um, his book from the 1950s, Exploration Fawcett, 1953, I believe, edited and perhaps touched up by his own son, Brian. This time, I'm going to be talking about a book called Brazil That Never Was by A.J. Lease. It's a slim volume and it's pretty recent. I believe it's from 2020, so within living memory for sure. Um, I'm going to treat this one a little bit differently because I'm not going to be reading large chunks out of it. The reason being, this is a tremendous book. I think you should go read it yourself. And while I'm going to be talking about some of the ideas contained within the book, this is uh, should be taken under no circumstances as being a replacement for actually holding it in your hands and reading it yourself. So I just want to say something about the production here. This is a lovely little book covered in some sort of green, clothy kind of cover. It's very small, it's very nice, it's very neat. It's by a group called Notting Hill Editions, and there's some spiel at the beginning of the book about how you know, in a fast-paced world where we are inundated with information and we're always on our phones. The idea was to make, uh, you know, books that are nice to hold and nice to read and kind of go back to that experience. And to be honest, the fact that it's relatively brief um, is part of that as well. You can breeze through this in a couple of afternoons, I would think, maybe even less, uh, because it really is that good. And I'm going I'm to go out on a limb and say that if you've enjoyed this series and you might read only one book about Fawcett, make it this one. Okay, I think I think David Grant's book is is wonderful. It's a little bit dated at the moment, and um, there's some stuff in it that feels very 2000 and something. Um, 
exploration faucet is tremendously interesting for hardcore people who have a certain tolerance to reading literature from the 1920s and earlier. Uh, but Brazil That Never Was is very recent and very wonderful and you will honestly get a fair idea of Fawcett's life and the mystery of his disappearance from this book without reading anything else, to be honest. And not only that, but this book is a memoir, of all things. It's, it's AJ least writing about his own childhood, growing up uh, at a town called St. Helens outside Liverpool and how he was a, a child of the 50s. Uh, growing up at a time when Liverpool was, a, you know, still a, a famous, well, it's still a famous port, but I suppose to him at this time, it, you know, coming at the very, very tail end of empire, you know, Liverpool was still a place of magic and travel and adventure because when he was a kid, he would go down to the docks with his father and uh, watch all of the ships and see where the ships were going and see what kind of, you know, exotic goods they were coming back with. And this was a, an important element of his childhood. And this is all crystallized in his fascination with Percy Fawcett's book, Exploration Fawcett. So a large chunk of this is about him growing up and being obsessed with Fawcett and what it meant to him as a young fellow and then growing up, you know, reassessing the story again and again and seeing Fawcett through different eyes. And as I said at the beginning of this series, every man has his Fawcett and this is perhaps the most interesting and observant take on not just Fawcett himself as a man, but what the myth of Fawcett came to mean throughout the rest of the 20th century and even later. Before I go much further, I should say that my beer sitting beside me here on the bank for the evening is O'Hara's Irish Stout in a nitro can. And I will also say that you can reach out as always over on Twitter where I'm at Strange Ireland or on Instagram where I'm Irish underscore cryptid underscore dude. And as always, you can help out the show over at buymeacoffee.com forward slash wide Atlantic. But you have to wait till the end of the episode to find out what exciting things people have sent me uh, this month and uh, I do have some good stuff to report on that front so hold tight. So sitting here down by the bank looking at my notes and I've talked about the cover quote and I've talked about so so let's let's talk a little bit about AJ Lee. So he's a medical man in London for most of his career but um, he talks a lot about growing up um, in sort of working class Liverpool and what that meant and he, he portrays it as you know, as you might imagine in your head, as being a kind of a grey time and a grey place. Um, but to him, it, you know, it was lit up by these this idea of the, the ships down the docks going all over the world and coming back with exi- exciting, exotic things. And there's a, an interesting part early in the book where he talks about, you know, growing up a little bit, being a bit older and all the changes that he sees in Liverpool, you know, during the 1960s. And it's it's just funny because that's such a time that now people remember so fondly with the the British invasion and, the, you know, the cool Britannia and the Beatles and everything and all of this. You know, it, it's seen by a lot of people as a, a cultural high point for, you know, British society, British culture and, and for Liverpool in particular. But for him, he's not interested in any of that because he doesn't, he's not down on, he's not negative about it. He's not kind of, you know, he's not anti-progressive. He doesn't seem to have a problem with the, the social movements of the time. But just for him, it's a signifier that the older days of the, the empire as um you know which he doesn't use that word he doesn't use that phrase but that's what's lurking beneath his memories and just as a kid seeing the connections to the far-flung parts of the world via the docks and the the old ships um, and all of that changing and he's just sad that that world that he knew and that he liked as a kid has been swept away and he does admit that life was hard and tough and he talks about how his 
his family had lived in that town St. Helens for like 300 years and their lot never got any better and they never you know felt the ability or perhaps the need to leave and see the world and maybe this is part of why the docs and eventually Fawcett's book which his father gives gets for him out of a library when he's a child maybe that's why the book comes to crystallize something so important to him so when he's a little bit older he he kind of grows out of Fawcett and he starts to think you know, he he goes through the whole life story of Fawcett, as we've covered in previous episodes. Fawcett's um, military career as a young man in in Sri Lanka, uh, now Ceylon. Uh, Fawcett uh, training with the Royal Geographical Society, getting sent on boundary mapping expeditions in South America, and then eventually his kind of wild ideas about the lost city of Zed and disappearing finally in the Mato Grosso in 1925. Lee covers all this in the kind of detail that you would hope. Um, but he, d- he then talks about how he, he took all this stuff at face value when he was a kid. He had no reason to, d- to disbelieve the stories of giant anacondas or, you know, um, tribes of people living under the ground. He had no reason to disbelieve Fawcett's um, individual adventures with all of these creatures. He talks about the Mitla, talks about the dinosaur uh, stories. And then as, as an older man, he comes back to this and he's more cynical. And he, he says, oh, well, clearly Fawcett was... An eccentric, you know, and this is why the establishment, the geographical establishment, the scientific establishment kind of lost their patience with him as he got older and were less inclined to fund his expeditions in later years, as we've as we've heard in in previous episodes. He goes to the RGS and uh, meets people who are working there and they provide him with all of Percy Fawcett's some individual papers and his letters and his journals. So He's he's again like like Gran before him, and he mentions Gran a few times. Like Gran before him, he's he's going in search of the individual documents. He's going to find more. He wants more information than he had access to in the books that were available to him. So this is fun to me because, like me, he's read Gran's book and he's read Ex- Exploration Fawcett, and he's ready to take the next step. So this is kind of for me logically the last the last book in the sequence, being as it's quite recent. And again, why I don't want to. I don't want this episode to try and replace the book because I think you should read it yourself. But what I found interesting is that when he goes to the RGS, he says that the the people there say, oh, you're not one of those faucet maniacs, are you? And as I've said before, perhaps I've become one of these faucet maniacs myself because that's that's what Gran says about them as well whenever he goes anywhere looking for information about faucet. So um, he says that on February the 13th, 1911, according to the proceedings of the RGS. Now, the, this is the proceedings of the RGS from that date on 1911. They say Fawcett gave a talk at Burlington Gardens. Um, and again, I'm just thinking about the, the previous episode where I was trying to nail down, you know, whether Arthur Conan Doyle could have been at one of these talks. Now, returning to Andrew Lysett's uh, Conan Doyle biography, The Man Who Created Sherlock Holmes, um, I just went back to that to check this and indeed the bit where he says that Conan Doyle attended a talk at the RGS by Percy Fawcett supposedly where he got some of his information about South America for the lost world it is the same date in 1911 in February of 1911 so that's pretty exciting that those two match and that this is information coming from the RGS itself Um, I'm pretty close to saying case closed on this one that we can we can prove the uh, presence of Arthur Conan Doyle at that particular on that particular date. At least I hope so. The the only problem being that I still don't know where Andrew Lysett is getting this information from that Conan Doyle was there. Um, 
being as he doesn't haven't found a quote of Conan Doyle uh, sourcing Fawcett himself. And uh, so a little bit more work to do there. But I am interested in what exactly did Fawcett say at this particular talk. Well, one quote that we have from Brazil that never was from that talk, presumably from the RGS notes, is this. I hinted last year at the romances which may await the explorer if he will leave the rivers and get away from the rubber districts into the more remote forests. They were not exaggerated. There are strange beasts and weird insects for the naturalist, and reason for not condemning as a myth the mysterious white Indian. But it should be remembered that the difficulties are great, and the tale of disasters a long one, for the few remaining unknown corners of the world exact a price for their secrets. And one thing that is interesting is that the RGS notes that he tells his story about the giant anaconda and it is flatly disbelieved. And I've always read in Fawcett books that he was irked about this, uh, how he was believed when he measured a mountain or a river, but not when he measured a snake. Least does a lot of kind of soul searching, hanging, you know, walking around Liverpool and then later on walking around London. And he goes to the, the, the Speak monument, the John Hanning Speak, who was the Victorian explorer who traveled with the today more famous um, Richard Burton, not the actor, the, the, the explorer captain, Sir Francis Richard Burton. And I, I have a small Speak story. So I was at a punk rock gig in London, I think last year, uh, that a friend of mine organizes. And it was a great night and bands came from all over the UK to play in uh, just a little pub that we had rented out in North London. And um, my friend is a, is a great promoter and does does good work. And we raised, or he raised, I'll stop saying we, I was just there. <laughs> I, was, I was just there. He was, um, he was raising money for homeless charities in London, so it's always a good gig. Anyway, uh, um, I was at the bar and... Somebody was ordering a drink that was, I, I can't, it must have been something odd or something very strong. And the bar person said, oh, that's, that's a fairly intense drink. And this guy said, well, damn it, man, the devil drives, which I knew as, as a, that was the motto of Richard Burton, the, the Victorian explorer. So I had to say to him, excuse me, where did, where did you get that? Because this, I, I always presume this stuff is not well known anymore. And people, ordinary people are not obsessed with these weirdos like me. And um, I said, do you know who said that? And he, he didn't know. So I said, well, it was, it was this guy, Fran Francis Richard Burton. And he immediately said, he knew who that guy, he knew who he was. And he immediately said, well, I'm a speak. And he, whatever this guy's full name was, was something or other speak. And so he had a dim, he had some dim knowledge of, of the history of the family. And it, apparently it was the right family and everything. And um, all I can say is it meant a damn sight more to me <laughs> than it did to him or, or anyone else at the gig. So that's my speak story uh, as is well known by victorian enthusiasts and um, the two explorers came to came to blows well not not physical blows but they they disagreed over the source of the nile after they'd come back from central africa and uh, they were due to face off in a in a highly publicized debate about the source of the nile at the rgs and the day i can't remember whether it was the day before i think it was even the day of john hanning speak like in a fit of of annoyance left the uh, left the 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 room where this they were having a kind of a rehearsal for the debate and he he got fed up with richard burton he walked out and went back to him i think a cousin or a relative was he was staying at a big mansion that they owned in the countryside and he went hunting and he killed himself by accident probably in a fairly bizarre and grotesque um, hunting accident where he was climbing over a wall and accidentally shot himself which is quite difficult to do and folks have always maintained that he did it deliberately out of you know shame and fear of not wanting to go up against 
Richard Burton, but um, I, I think the case there is not definitely not closed. Anyway, that's a that's all aside. So just I mean, it is kind of relevant. These were the kind of people who. You know, Fawcett was kind of emulating, or at least was following in their footsteps, these great Victorian explorers. And I think he always felt that he was never given the same level of importance that they that they had back in the in, in Victorian times. And he he was you know he was often claimed to be the Livingston of the of South America. That was how he was described at some of his lectures. And again, harking back to the Victorian African explorers, but as important as he was, and as as celebrated and as well known as he was. There was always something a bit second tier to me about Fawcett when you read the papers from the time in, in that the, the way his stories were told and retold, there's always something kind of insalubrious or a little bit sensationalist about them. You know, with with, with um, John Hanning Speak and with Richard Burton and, and with Livingston and even with Henry Morton Stanley, there was this feeling of these guys are doing something important and it's for science and it's for humanity and it's for, you know, opening up these areas for trade and empire and this stuff. And it was all taken very seriously, whereas, you know, Fawcett was kind of, he his stories read more like the stuff of Pulp Fiction by the by the 1920s, you know, and his, his stories about giant snakes and dinosaurs and lost cities all felt pulpy and a little bit silly by comparison. But perhaps that's just my own interpretation that I'm painting in there. Anyway, at this time, Fawcett is getting hugely into the occult, as you may recall. So he writes an article for the Occult Review. And I'm going to read a tiny bit of it here because it's not... Because it's an original source thing, I guess. Fawcett writes, The brotherhoods and lodges are very real. I know something of their work. As to the doctrine itself, I have attempted to express it. Everyone must please himself. At its worst, it is intellectually conceivable that it is a step in the right direction. The great enterprise depends upon a smaller one, which will, I hope, provide the means of enabling one to at least make the further pilgrimage, if necessary, alone. Though I would prefer two reliable companions. So Fawcett here is, of course, talking about his his uh, planned trip to find the last city of Zed, which finally happens in 1925. Um... Interesting here. So he's talking about brotherhoods. He's talking about lodges. He's clearly expecting to find some organization or group in this in this part of the jungle that he's exploring, maybe even in the city itself. And this is extremely theosophist language, brotherhoods and lodges, white lodges. So people will remember from earlier episodes that Fawcett, of course, had close family connections not only to, you know, various theosophists, but to Madame Blavatsky herself with, you know, his own brother helping her to write some of her most important literature. So it's not shouldn't be too surprising that, you know, he's using this kind of language to describe his goal and to describe his, his dream love expedition. But, you know, there's nothing quite as intense or as straightforward as this, straightforwardly occult as this in his own book, because a lot of that was taken out or was wiped out or was kind of tamped down either by himself or perhaps by Brian Fawcett. That remains to be seen. But interesting to hear how different his tone is when he's writing for an explicitly spiritualist audience, because this is, of course, in the, uh, in the, the occult review. Now, early on in Brazil That Never Was, A.J. Lee does indeed wonder did Brian Fawcett, in fact, write the whole book? 
uh, that exploration faucet that is he notes that the intro and the outro chapters which are definitely written by brian um, have pretty much the same tone and energy as the rest of the book and i suppose it's a possibility what he's hinting at here is that exploration faucet is not just a you know a, a simple tidy up of faucet's writing or faucet's manuscripts but that it is something much stranger it is is a retelling it is a, a deliberately altered tome created to give the public a very particular version of Fawcett, one that emphasizes him as being a scientist uh, and a trained explorer, a cartographer, uh, someone who, you know, has skills and is thinking more or less materially. There's a bit of weird stuff in there. There's occasional moments of occult thinking and there is even two poltergeist stories which I somehow couldn't fit into my previous two episodes. Can you imagine? Maybe I've recorded more about uh, exploration faucet than anybody else in podcast land and i couldn't even get around to two poltergeist stories that he talks about while traveling in south america that's how much stuff there was to get through but by and large exploration faucet paints him as a kind of a rationalist um there's some if you if you remember there's some excuse making made at the beginning of the book where brian says oh you know some have said he was a mystic well i don't th- if it makes him a mystic to want to go and discover new stuff then so be it he's a mystic and uh, that, that's a bit of a long way from, you know, secret brotherhoods in the jungle and, you know, mystical the- theosophical white lodges, if you ask me. And, and then later on, going through, you know, Fawcett's own writings and stuff, um, Lee's comes across a letter from 1924 where Fawcett basically explains to, that he, he can no longer afford his Royal Geographical Society membership. This is how poor he's become. And all of his financial hopes are on his memoir. So that is presumably Exploration Fawcett itself, which, as far as I can make out, and, and the book itself is kind of funny about dates, um, as far as I can make out, he's, he's writing it while he's living back in Devon shortly before his final expedition. So it's 1923 or 4 is, is, is my, get, my best guess. And that would make sense with this letter. And it would, also, it would also imply that he did write the book himself, or at least he wrote something himself, or at least he was working on a manuscript himself. Um, interestingly for me, um, there's a letter from December 3rd, 1924, which states that he goes and has dinner with another explorer by the name of Richard Marsh. Most of these letters are written to um, Kelty, who is his old chief back at the RGS, by the way. Now, this is pretty important because this guy, Richard Oglesby Marsh, um, who Fawcett has dinner with when he first comes to America, this is on his, his final trip in, at the end of 1924, um, in December 1924, he meets this guy and they have dinner. Um, he, this guy is important in the history of the idea of the so-called white Indian tribe that we've been talking about for like four episodes now. And he's probably one of the most important people in the history of this idea because uh, the year before, in 1923, he had gone to Panama. Um, the book here describes him as former US Secretary of Legation and Charge d'Affaires to Panama. So he uh, clearly had a, a, a political, some of political appointments at various times, but he was also a writer. He was also an adventurer. And he made at least two trips to Panama trying to track down what he believed were groups of so-called white Indians. And he went one further than a lot of these other guys with the same idea because in in 1923 he brought back three members of the Kuna tribe 
who he believed were, you know, so-called white Indians. And they got brought around North America and became, you know, it was a brief newspaper thing. And he got them checked out by ethnologists and other kinds of scientists. And he finally got somebody to say, oh my goodness, their language has traces of Scandinavian in it. Therefore, this proves that there must have been, you know, pre-Columbian contact with Scandinavians in the jungles of Central America. And it was a bit of a nine-day wonder. Basically, they were, as is often the case with these stories, it's almost certain that they were actually albino people, being especially being that, like, in each case, their parents didn't look as pale as them and looked like the rest of the people in their tribe. So, very odd guy, but pretty key in the history of this idea. And here he is having dinner with, with Percy Fawcett and presumably talking about um, these kinds of ideas. But I will mention what it says here in Brazil that never was, which is, um, Marsh believed the Mayans and Incans had derived their culture from the ancient Atlantean civilization of bearded men and beautiful women, and that this high Brazilian race used the same names for the zodiac constellations as are used today, the remnant of their mighty empire that had ranged from the Atlantic to the Pacific shores was now crystallized in the traditions of the indigenous tribes of the Amazon forest. He told Fawcett that interbreeding between Viking adventurers and the Aboriginal population had created the white Amazon Indian and that 12 of the words in their language had been identified as of Swedish origin. So I think this very much would have fit in with what Fawcett was believing at this time. And I'm just I'm blown away that these guys knew each other. Um, and yet I'm not at all surprised. Um, Fawcett at this point is is writing full-blown letters about Atlantis to Kelty back at the RGS. You, you can imagine how well they went down. He already had a reputation there for being a bit eccentric and maybe not the guy to put your money behind. Although, um, while he did have to source his money for his final expedition elsewhere and he was tracking down kind of private funders, they did eventually turn around and kind of come back to him. And uh, I, th I think once he had built up a certain profile with the press and there was a lot of attention going for his final expedition, they did come on board and, and give him a, a final bit of support, maybe for old time's sake. There then comes an interesting part where Lees talks about David Grant's book, The Lost City of Zed, and he, he points out what I, I think I agree with this, which is that Grant pushes the idea of Fawcett being you know, not that kooky. He was an ex he was an explorer. He was a good explorer. He had some silly ideas, but he had a lot of good ideas as well. And in particular, if you'll recall our first episode, Gran wants to depict Fawcett as a guy who's almost progressive in that he has more respect for the indigenous people of the Amazon than other scientists did in his day, which, as we've discussed before, is, is both true and not true at the same time. Um... Grant wants you to think that Fawcett believed that these people were capable of more than other people believed and that they had these great cities and that, you know, the, the later evidence we've discovered that actually there were much bigger populations of people in the Amazon than we believed and there's evidence of large-scale agriculture which we can depict through soil studies and through ecology studies now and um, which tell us that there was, you know, there were very sophisticated um, living patterns going on there. And, and that Fawcett somehow was on the trail of this. And if he'd, you know, if he'd been able to carry out his work a little bit longer, maybe he would have come to this same conclusion. And I'm, by now, I've, and, and hopefully you will by now, you'll, you'll have the idea that, well, actually, what Fawcett believed was much stranger than that. And he was far more into a, a kind of an occult or even metaphysical version of what was at the center of the jungle and what was in the lost city that he was searching for and it, was it maybe not just 
a a practical physical location that he was trying to get to but more of a spiritual one anyway the 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 film the lost city of zed comes out and the book chronicles um lisa's interest in the film and at that point we get the entry of a man named john hemming who also is uh, he's more like a latter day Amazon Explorer, and he had some harsh words to say about the legacy of Percy Fawcett around about the time that the film came out, and I did promise a million episodes ago that I would get into that in a little bit of detail, so I think it's about time to do that. So, uh, Lee visits Hemming to get more information from him about like how he feels about Fawcett, and he says Gran had r- revived the green hell genre of Amazon travel writing and written a false history. And that's fairly damning, but I do find this a little bit astute, the green hell genre. The, the idea that like Fawcett's writing like someone who isn't really a naturalist, his description of the Amazon and of all the animals within it is a little bit over the top and ridiculous. Everything is, is trying to kill him. Everything he meets has to be this life and death scenario. And his descriptions of some of the animals he meets are not very convincing if you actually know something about the Amazon and again like I said earlier there is something of a kind of a, a pulp fiction quality to Fawcett's story that does make him seem different to some of the earlier explorers some of the more scientific explorers and don't get me wrong some you know those guys were self-aggrandizing um types who wanted to make their adventures you know very exciting and their books were heavily edited for public consumption but there just was something different about Fawcett. He was, and there was something different about the world at the time when this was happening. This this genre of jungle travel was less associated with science, and 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 for Fawcett particularly with exploration, just because he didn't really discover anything specific. He did some of these sort of fairly routine, um, you know, boundary commission jobs where, you know, he he was charting places that weren't exactly well known, but he didn't discover the source of some famous river. He didn't discover in the end any lost cities. He didn't discover, um, you know, new species of things that he was able to corroborate with, um, with real evidence. And a lot of this is written up in John Hemming's essay, The Lost City of Fantasy from the Spectator in 2017, so uh, shortly after the, the film came out. And he describes Fawcett's career very damningly. He says, you know, he had a routine uh, lifestyle. He had an uneventful life prior to... I mean, he lived in some interesting places, but he, as an explorer, he didn't do anything important. Um, he does ignore the spy work that Fawcett probably did in North Africa, um, but basically a lot of his work was kind of... is described in uh, John Hemming as sort of routine survey work and he says that Fawcett in South America cruised from one comfortable rubble baraka to the next and that's not 100% true but it does ring a little bit true you'll remember my earlier surprise upon reading Exploration Fawcett that you know he did seem to find that the places he went to were pretty populated I'm not saying it wasn't a tough life and that travel wasn't difficult and awkward there was disease there were problems with insects there were there was a lot of alcoholism and a lot of um, atrocities associated with the rubber trade everywhere Fawcett did go it wasn't a walk in the park by any means but I did definitely get the impression that he was traveling from you know uh, estate to estate and staying with people who were you know putting him up for periods of time more so than I felt that he was going days and weeks through the jungle, you know, camping out in the forest and, and you know, away from human contact. There was rather surprisingly little of that in the book. And for sure, in the film, 
of of La City of Zed, that the impression you get is that he did spend all this time on his own, or at least that's what the film focuses on. And again, accusations of the the so called green hell genre, which I associate with like men's magazines of the fifties, pulp stories of the twenties, thirties, and forties. Yeah, I mean this is stuff. These story I I have um, a book called Cryptozoology Anthology, which traces the history of you know ideas about cryptid monsters in mostly men's magazine fiction of the 50s and it's it's the the jungle adventure genre is still going strong in that format at that time even though perhaps it wasn't being taken seriously um in more let's say highbrow media uh, shall we say um and Hemming says that Fawcett was uninterested in nature apart from banalities about dangerous snakes and irritating insects he's kind of only interested in making out like you know, the jungle is a hellish place, everything wants to get you. Sometimes, sometimes that's true, sometimes it's not. Fawcett had a love for the Amazon, and he had a love for South America, which I hope I've impressed upon you in my episodes um, about about exploration Fawcett. It's just that, from a naturalist point of view, yeah, he tended to be a bit sensational. Now, interestingly, John Hemming does does something that I, I allows me to pick up on an earlier thread from earlier episodes. So you'll recall that Fawcett meets a group of people who in in a chapter called a prehistoric peep, and he describes them, um, perhaps literally or perhaps um, not literally, as being prehistoric, as being like ape men. My contention was that he's not me. He doesn't mean this literally. It's he's just being a bit racist with his descriptions of some tribe. And John Hemming says that Fawcett describes the Maracoxi tribe. And he says that these are probably the Sakurabiat. So this he has a name for this group of people that he thinks that Fawcett is referring to based on where he is in the jungle and where, you know, who was living there at the time. And again, this allows me to put a little more context onto this story, which, lest we forget, you know, is all around the internet as an example of, you know, mysterious Bigfoot-like ape men people living in South America. And you know with a little bit of digging now we've found that perhaps it's an actual group of people which is pretty upsetting but there you go now i have a little information uh, about this group of people and it's coming from a website called povos indigenas no brazil and it says this demographically reduced yet strong and warlike the sakurabayat are engaged in a daily struggle for survival and preservation of their culture and customs since the first contact with non-Indians, they have suffered various types of exploitation. They have worked for a long time in rubber extraction. They were kept under the yoke of several lumbermen who invaded their territory. In their struggle for the demarcation of their lands, they were accused. Today, they relive the stories of the old people told by the elderly in the Sakurabayat language. At the same time, they are concerned with discovering ways of going back to teaching the language to their children. So it does seem as though, as though this group uh, suffered under the rubber trade, as many, many other groups did. But a little a little coda to that uh, story of Fawcett encountering this so-called uh, prehistoric tribe, which doesn't make me feel particularly disposed to Fawcett, at least upon this occasion. Hemming uh, also reckons that David Gran uh, very much exaggerates the <laughs> number of people who have like gone missing or died looking for Fawcett. He writes, When the colonel vanished, Gran writes that scores of explorers tried to find him, 
and that one recent estimate put the death toll from these expeditions as high as 100. Actually, only one search expedition reached the Zingu, led by George Diet in 1928. It found that the three Englishmen had been killed by Indians. The only other expedition was in 1932, but it got only as far as the Arugai River far to the east. The death toll from these two attempts was zero. In 1935, a ridiculous actor called Albert de Winton went by himself to the Zingu and was killed by Indians who wanted his gun. So if we count him, the death toll is one, well short of Grand's 100. I think there's some truth here, though he's being particularly um, picky in which expeditions he chooses to accept and which ones he doesn't, you know, by saying, well, they only some of them got as far as the, the Zingu. Um, from my own reading, it seems like a lot of strange people went into the jungle throughout the 1920s, 30s, 40s, and the 50s, and I know some of them came to bad ends. And I, I do have come across stories like as late as the 1980s and 90s where people... Um, to be fair, didn't get very far and were actually captured by groups of local people, you know, who were understandably unimpressed with interlopers and had all of their television equipment um, held to ransom and, and, and sold. <laughs> so this is a take which has some truth to it, but I think it's uh, I think it's not in good faith. And so this is where things get really strange. And this is where we start getting information that really isn't part of the Fawcett story in any other book that I've come across. And that's one of the things that made me want to um, talk about this book so much. So Lee picks up a, a book by David Holmes when he, he's just looking at a random library. So I think he's in Edinburgh when this happens uh, at, at a bookshop there. And he picks up a copy of a book called Tommy. By, by Richard Holmes, I believe. And this is a book about British soldiers in the First World War. Now, I don't have this book, but it's part of a trilogy about British soldiers in different parts of history. And being a kind of a em history of empire buff, I have one of the sister volumes, which is called Saib, about British India. So I know the style of the writer. And um, he's flicking through this book, and he just happens to come across um, a very brief snippet of... Um, Percy Fawcett during the uh, some some actions of Fawcett's during the First World War and it talks about how and this is in a book that's nothing to do with Fawcett and definitely nothing to do with the occult and it says that he was kind of infamous in the trenches um for you know only allowing soldiers to to return fire into into the darkness when the Germans were shelling them um at particular locations that he had uh, discovered based on using his Ouija board so and again this is in a book that has no interest in the occult and yet the, the the one paragraph in the whole book about Percy Fawcett has that to say about him. So by this point in, in 1914 and later, he is getting kind of deep into the occult. And from here on out, it only gets stranger. And yeah, there, there's, there's stuff here I really ha hadn't come across anywhere else. So I, I found it pretty interesting. A lot of the information about Fawcett's spiritual and spiritualist doings comes from another writer by the name of Misha Williams, uh, who was a play is a playwright and a, and a writer and he did a play about Percy Fawcett in fact he had visited uh, Fawcett's own daughter Joan while she was still alive he had collected he'd gone through all the sort of um, original material that Fawcett had there were 100 letters from psychics and mediums that Fawcett had in his collection there were essays from the son Brian talking about elementals and there were 
copies that had been retyped by, you know, by hand, or not by hand, but by, by typewriter, I suppose, of um, Madame Blavatsky's books, Isis Unveiled and The Secret Doctrine. So this is the work of a family that is, is still v- deeply influenced by theosophy. We also find out from Misha Williams that, and, and from from his talking to uh, Fawcett's daughter, Joan, that one of the reasons why none of the people who followed Fawcett into the jungle were ever ever able to find out um, where he went was because he gave false coordinates for the spot, the location known as Dead Horse Camp. It was called that, of course, because Fawcett's, um, had, Fawcett's horse had died there on an earlier trip, I think in 1921. And he used this as kind of the jumping off point for all of his other directions in that area, you know, supposedly going out looking for Zed. And he had given false ones to the paper papers and in his book and everywhere else. And then... We get a weird bit where uh, the daughter Joan says to Misha Williams when he's leaving that, uh, you know, in, in regards to all this research he's doing about Fawcett, she says, learning the truth will not bring back the carefree days of your youth, which is very on the nose for me because this is like, I don't know if this is Misha Williams' take or uh, Joan's take, but it's definitely Lisa's take because, you know, the point of his book and his interpretation of Fawcett and his interpretation of um, Exploration Fawcett is that he deeply, deeply, deeply associates it with his childhood and his whole, he frames his, you know, research into Fawcett as an attempt to, you know, find, get back to this kind of pure space in his head, in his memory of when he was a child reading that book. And so for, you know, somebody, three people removed from him, to say this uh, is really on the nose, you know, she's like spelling the theme of the book out loud. So I guess I'm a tiny bit sceptical about that exact quote. But as the material from Misha Williams comes in, it just gets stranger and stranger. Uh, we get all these letters from the family to to one another between uh, Percy and his wife and uh, eventually his son Brian in later years. But um, it's all about the the brother Jack. So Jack, who of course disappeared with Percy in in 1925, and there's a lot of material about his birth in Ceylon um, in 1903, how his birth had been predicted to Percy Fawcett by Buddhist mystics, and if you're if you're one of these people trying to keep uh, tabs on like Fawcett's uh, doings where he lived at this time, this so this is like a short period of time when they went back to Sri Lanka. You know, he'd lived there when he was younger, but he he went back there briefly uh, at this time before he went to Ireland and then before he did any of his uh, South American exploring. So that's when Jack is conceived and born. And like Fawcett is just writing in these letters saying things like, oh, he's um, he's gifted and he's intermittently clairvoyant. And both both of both of his parents are psychic, you know, full stop. And this is in a letter, actually, to uh, the uh, magazine or a periodical called The Theosophist. And that letter is from 1913. So deep, deep into the spiritual stuff at this point. He talks endlessly about how there's some special destiny for Jack. And if you map this onto some of the the more straightforward versions of Percy Fawcett's quest later in his life that we've heard already about getting to the Lost City and about finding something special and meaningful and even spiritual in the middle of the jungle and um, it all we realize it all becomes tied up with his beliefs about his son jack and he's putting all of his hopes into jack who he seem basically seems to think of as some kind of nietzschean superman and even in the regular interpretations of Fawcett's life and beliefs he talks about jack as being absolutely pure in all his mind and his body and he does nothing but 
um, you know, work out and do hard work. And, you know, he doesn't look at women and he wouldn't dream of touching a cigarette or a bottle of beer. So there's this very Victorian purism at play in his, his vision of Jack. But there's something there's something more spiritual going on as well. And we also get um, amongst all these this stack of papers, there is an article by Madame Blavatsky herself, which Fawcett has kept, where she talks about how there are these, you know, various lost cities scattered around the world, including several in South America, and that they're connected by a network of secret tombs and secret tunnels all across the continent, and that the entrances are guarded by a secret society. And, and some of the kind of cults that basically picked up the trail of Fawcett after he disappeared in the 20th century um, had beliefs like this, where they, they would gather around certain towns in South America and, and say, oh, there's a, t- there's a, a cave here and, um, you know, you can hear Fawcett's voice from the inside and that's where the tunnel to the hollow earth is and we are the keepers and the guardians of it. Um, so in 1922, Fawcett writes for Occult Review and he kind of goes, he kind of runs with this idea again about these, these hidden mystical cities. Um, he talks how there's six underground lodges in locations where ancient civilizations had been uh, and they're connected to the astral plane and surrounded by a wall of impenetrable mental matter. And so I'm kind of getting the idea here that he he must have taken... Where did he get this idea that there was a lost city in South America that he had to go and find? It seems like he was very influenced by Blavatsky in particular. We knew he was influenced by her in in the general because he had a history with the theosophy and his brother had a direct history with Blavatsky herself but now we get this direct connection with her talking about lost cities in South America interestingly he writes in a cult review that he thinks oh, you know these secret cities scattered around South America each one of them has a kind of a secret school within them you know and this again this is like theosophical white lodge type stuff but he specifically says that they're to be found everywhere except Europe and he basically, he was so traumatized by the First World War, his his idea about, his conception of Europe was so tarnished that he, you know, on a spiritual level, he believes Europe cannot possibly, you know, be connected to this larger mystical world of goodness. Um, you know, the war must have scared them away. The war has made it impossible for Europe to be spiritually enlightened. And therefore, you know, you have to get out of Europe to reach this, you know, to reach this goal. And that... That just puts a spiritual gloss on what he says himself in Exploration Fawcett, where he, he's more mundane about it. He just kind of says, you know, Europe and England, in particular in Britain, they're kind of a spent force. You know, the war was really disappointing. It showed that there, there's no such thing as, you know, we're not civilized here in Europe. Therefore, he put all of his hopes into South America. And in the book, he he makes it sound like it's a political thing. You know, all these great new republics that are now independent, you know, they're going to be taking their place amongst the great nations of the world. This is the future uh, you know, these are great new countries, but here we see, no, he has, he's been spiritually, he, he feels spiritually severed from his European background, and he's desperately looking to find that somewhere else. And I mean, this is part of a larger, a larger tradition, as is theosophy itself of, you know, Europeans coming to believe that, oh, you know, in Europe, we're too boring and materialist and science has dispelled all the mystery and we're too scientific and rational. And therefore, you have to go looking elsewhere for um, for the mysticism. And of course, that very often takes on a kind of a cringy Orientalist quality, like for Blavatsky, she looked east. Uh, Fawcett was looking across the Atlantic, of course, to South America. But the, the I feel like the ideas are coming from the same place. Now, 
something very important happens. Again, not mentioned anywhere else that I've seen about Fawcett. And I can't get over like how little this is remarked upon, given the importance it must have had upon his life. He meets a guy named Harold Large in 1909. This guy has come from uh, New Zealand. He is a former theosophist. He's also a former Golden Dawn initiate. So he has, you know, fairly wide ranging um, occultist credentials. He's one of these guys who, you know, he came to believe, no, this kind of focus on Eastern stuff, you know, that the theosophists are into, that's not right. I want to go back to a Western style occultism. So he gets into the Golden Dawn and then he gets fed up with them as well, as many people are. And he forms a kind of, or he's part of a breakaway. I know not everybody agrees with this, but some folk, some folks describe them as a breakaway uh, Golden Dawn um, organization down in New Zealand. And they, this is at a place called Havelock North. There was a big article on this in 40 and Times, I think, last year. Um, I dug it out recently when I was down at Cork, and it says almost nothing about Harold Large, so, which is a pity because I'd like to know more about him. But in 1918, Harold Large writes to Fawcett and, wouldn't you know, sends him an article talking about the Bandera, Banderantes finding the lost city in 1753 so this according to Fawcett's own writing and Gran and most everybody else who's commented this is how Fawcett first learns about Zed right now we know that he has he's, he's seen things in his travels that have put this seed in his mind but this supposed document is what crystallizes it so it is very important um and this is the only place where I've seen it said that this guy Harold Large is the person who sent it to him and interestingly it is translated from the Portuguese by none other than Isabel Burton, the wife of um, African explorer Richard Burton, who we've mentioned already. And I'm just going to make a quick connection here. If, if anyone's ever seen the film Mountains of the Moon, or Ex- I think it's called Expedition to the Mountains of the Moon, something like that. It's a late 80s or early 90s film about African explorers. It's got Richard Burton in it and John Hanning speak. And um, in that film, the wife, Isabel Burton is played by Fiona Shaw, who is from Cork and went to my university. So that's my Cork connection there. Um, and I visited their grave, the Isabel Burton and Richard Burton. They're buried together at a place in London called Mortlake Cemetery. And their grave is shaped like uh, a Bedouin tent uh, in honor of sort of Burton's obsession with uh, basically non-European <laughs> civilizations. Uh, so that's something I did once upon a time made a bit of a pilgrimage Uh, when Fawcett gets this letter from Harold Large talking about these guys finding the city supposedly back in 1753 he immediately is and he reads all this stuff about the oh you know the statue with the with the with the laurel wreath pointing its finger and the you know the symbols that seem Greek and Fawcett of course as I guessed earlier a million years ago he immediately jumps to the conclusion oh that must mean it's Atlantis. And we actually have this in a letter uh, from him back to Large saying, oh yeah, that must mean it must be a connection to Atlantis. And kind of from here on out, folks, I'm going to cut to highlights from this book because uh, I basically want you to go and read this. I think it's really good and I don't really want to crib too heavily on it for the kind of last part of this. Um, however, I will I will provide a few highlights, a few things that I really didn't know or couldn't find anywhere else. I mean, the first and most important thing is that Fawcett and this fellow Harold Large were very close and together they kind of created 
a, a spiritual worldview, a spiritual scheme. And this really is the key to understanding what Fawcett thought was going to happen to, to him when he got to the secret place in the jungle and um, and found this lost city. And it's it's pretty it's pretty wild. So there are a lot of letters to support this and uh, Lee reads them himself while he's visiting uh, Williams's house. And these are from Fawcett and his family members basically saying that they're aware that he's searching for a great white lodge which is a theosophical or perhaps pseudo-theosophical idea. Um, uh, Williams incidentally wrote a play about this in about 2004 called Amazonia, so it's not true to say that you can't find this information anywhere, but um, I certainly hadn't come across it before I read this book a couple of years ago. So Fawcett is intending to get to this mystical place and found a new community there, which is going to be run along the same lines as um, the, the Havelock community down in, in New Zealand and that uh, his son Jack is going to let him, his body be overtaken by the spirits and that Jack will then lead humanity into this new golden age and he will return and come back to you know hum- the rest of humanity and set up new lodges and um, probably starting in Sri Lanka as it's a place that they know and they love very well. Or maybe it's because Jack was, was conceived and born there, I'm not sure. Um, Another thing I found out here is that a million episodes ago, I was wondering whether the psychic or psychometrist who told Fawcett this information about the the little statuette supposedly given to him by H.R. Haggard and that it had a connection to Atlantis, I was wondering whether that person was anybody famous, some famous occultist from the time I might have known. It was a woman named Helen Barry, uh, and I don't know much about her. I've looked this up, but there are unfortunately a lot of contemporary um, spiritualists or... um, mediums with that name operating so it's kind of a little bit difficult to get too much information about that um another weird little thing is that Fawcett and his son um changed and his wife all changed their names for numerological reasons Fawcett by the way starts calling himself Zahas um, and I really don't have a lot of patience with numerology it's not one of the it's not one of these ideas I find very interesting um but they're convinced to do it by another spiritualist or occultist and this is how they refer to each other Fawcett and his wife and his son in all of their letters to one another from this time uh, Nina the his wife incidentally unlike the way she's portrayed in the, in the film she remains a committed spiritualist for the rest of her life she claims to be in telepathic communication with Percy uh, later on in in his life uh, when he's after he's disappeared as well and most entertainingly for me, she seeks out the advice of the very, very, very famous, at the time anyway, um, psychic medium Geraldine Cummins, who is, was from Cork and, you know, was reading the palms and telling the fortunes of the great and the good, including very many famous people like Mackenzie King, Prime Minister of Canada. Uh, but she wrote a book about Fawcett in the 1950s called, I think, The Fate of Colonel Fawcett or some some such. And it's all about her you know, channeling Percy Fawcett and all the things he's saying. And when she visits Nina, she says, oh, yes, you know, Percy has told me that he is living with these um, South American Indians in this village and he doesn't want you to go looking for him and he's perfectly happy. Uh, Whether or not that was what Nina wanted to hear, I don't know. Fawcett, or rather Brian Fawcett, in his letters reveals his worry that uh, as as we heard earlier on in in some of in the words of some of Fawcett's own detractors, Brian worried that his father's career had been kind of pointless. He writes some of the same things that we've heard already, like you know he didn't really discover anything new, and there's nothing named after him. Um, you know, he, in that way, I suppose you could say, even though he was going to unusual places, 
uh, that were not very well known in the West. You know, what he was doing is quite different to what the African explorers were doing, you know, 50 years prior. So, you know, think about, keep this in your mind when you think about Brian Fawcett kind of curating his father's memory later on when he writes or contributes or, or tidies up um, exploration uh, Fawcett. And then things get really strange. So we know from these letters that Brian had this long-standing belief that he had a, a fairy mistress who he called M. And this is a, a spirit or a being or a personality that stuck with him for many years, gave him lots of advice. And here's the key thing, folks. M, his fairy mistress, set the tone of exploration faucet. According to his letters, it is his fairy mistress who tells him to write the book in such a way as to weed out too much of the strange stuff because the British public will not be able to accept it. And it is M who tells him to frame Percy Fawcett as a straight-down-the-line heroic explorer, you know, a guy who fights dangers and is like a brave knight and, you know, discovers new things and believes in things that nobody else believes. But it's not because he's a kook, it's because he's a visionary in the positive sense of the term. And there's quite a lot of writing surviving about this where, you know, uh, Brian says, oh, you know, M said to me that I did a great job of fooling the public with this gigantic red herring. So that's pretty astonishing. When you think about all the time we've put into assessing ex Exploration Fawcett and other interpretations, even David Grant's book, where, where none of this is mentioned, um, I suppose you could argue that not all of it was known at the time, but... This is a com like I at no point would prior to reading this book would I have thought um that there was something like this lying at the heart of it because this isn't even you know regular spiritualism this is very much its own thing and and it gets stranger Brian not only believed that he had a fairy mistress but that his father had been um, seduced this is the word he used by a predecessor of M another kind of fairy woman uh, during his time in Ireland at a place called Carrigaline in Cork, which is kind of funny if you know, if you're from Cork. Uh, there's nothing wrong with Carrigaline. It's just not the kind of place I think of as being particularly mystical. Shout out to Matt, uh, if you're listening, for, on behalf of the Carrigaline Massive. Joan, um, his, his daughter, also adds to this by saying things like, oh, you know, his whole life, Brian, you know, was not only talking to his fairy mistress. Apparently the family were quite open to each other about this stuff. Um, he saw giant ghostly spiritual spiders and he saw miniature UFOs in his front room. And interestingly, Brian also writes that he has an opinion on his brother Jack. And and we've previously had this version of Brian where, you know, he was, he was astonishingly jealous of Jack because he was too young to go off on the expedition and Jack was the golden boy. And Brian was packed off to Peru to work for the railway at 17, you know, seeing his father for the last time at the train station in the mid-twenties. And here we have in a letter, uh, Brian saying that Jack is a bit of a waster, actually. And he, he just kind of wastes his time doing things like reading Fu Manchu novels, which I enjoyed immensely. Lovely to hear that. And finally, for this section, and perhaps most sadly, in a book called Ruins in the Sky, which is written by Brian. Brian describes flying over um, South America, flying over Brazil, hoping to find something. Well, whether or not he was hoping to find it is open to debate. Certainly a an interpretation of Brian that he didn't want to find anything. He certainly didn't want to find any remains of his father. He certainly didn't want proof that his father had come to some you know, fairly ordinary end. Um, but what he does see are it, sort of geological formations while flying over a place called Pedro de Beliza in the state of Goyas and to him at least the case is fairly settled that 
there's a lot of elements here that are natural ge geographic geological formations that match with what the Bandeirantes talked about in the paper from 1753 and that therefore this is just a story of a natural feature that kind of got out of hand and it's rather shocking to me after all this time to see Brian you know kind of admitting this to himself and to us and such brings us to the end of our final uh, main source for information about the life and times of Mr. Percy Fawcett. And so, constant listener, having come all this way with us, having trudged through and macheted our way across four hours of Fawcett, maybe more, um, you might be wondering, what do I think about all this? Uh, as I said a long time ago, Every man has his faucet. Uh, we've come across different iterations of the man. He's meant different things to different people. I think one thing that struck me about Lisa's book is that the occult stuff, it doesn't come out of nowhere, but it really ramps up um, later in the game. And it kind of, I get the impression that Lisa isn't tremendously interested in this stuff himself. I also get the impression that he wasn't tremendously interested in it probably prior to doing this research. I think he was probably surprised himself. Um, he doesn't delve deeply into it he doesn't interpret very much he just talks about some of this material that he saw in 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 the letters and he doesn't spend a whole lot of time trying to situate this thinking in the time that Fawcett lived in movements uh, around him like the theosophy or spiritualism um I, I'm not certain that it's an area that he maybe feels he has a lot of expertise in or any particular interest and so I tend to think that uh, the core of this is probably true and I think there's definitely a lot of stuff that Brian Fawcett left out of his book for whatever reason and which David Grant sort of kind of admits to a little bit uh, but chooses not to delve into in his book because again he just wanted a slightly different take uh, on Fawcett and one that proved to be um, very commercially palatable and that, that's not a criticism I, I enjoyed his book very much as well I'm just I'm just fascinated by the same how the same story can be told in, in so many different ways. Uh, I think Fawcett was a guy who got more desperate as the years went by. I think his style of adventuring, if you want to call it that, I think his style of um, uh, exploration was a bit out of date by the time he was kind of in his prime. I think he was a guy who never really got, a, got to understand the kind of etiquette of, you know, Victorian England and an upper class society, which he was tangentially a part of. And um, unlike some of these other great explorers, he never quite, you know, even like people like Richard Burton, who would also have fought against the grain uh, for a lot of his life, but eventually did become celebrated, you know, through his writings and his kind of force of personality and, and being associated with very famous things like um, finding the, you know, supposedly the source of the Nile. And Fawcett kind of always lacked that killer app his whole life. And I suppose that's one of the places you could say maybe... Um, the, the lost city of Zed comes from even if you leave out some of the more spiritual stuff and yeah he's he's a guy who never really found his time as I said before I, I think he was not taken as seriously as some of his predecessors I think Amazon exploration was seen as this slightly sub-tier maybe pulpy uh, maybe kind of you know silly magazine type stuff by comparison with the African exploration from years earlier but again that, that could be just my own take I think he was a tremendously interesting guy and I think there was a side to him that was personal and was extremely different from the way that his story has been told for uh, quite a good many decades now and with that folks I'm going to leave it and hopefully we can never we, we can all hope that we never say falsehood again mm -hmm.
Okay, folks. So as always, you can reach out over at Twitter where I'm at Strange Ireland or on Instagram where I'm Irish underscore cryptid underscore dude. Normal people can probably check out now, although go and support the show first before you do that over at buymeacoffee.com forward slash white Atlantic. And I would like to thank Mutant Museum for doing so recently. Um, and I will give a shout out to something fun that Mutant Museum has done. But like I said, yeah, ordinary people can check out. Uh, now, I did promise I'd put some fun interaction stuff at the end and I have got some good things. So this is it. Yeah, so Mutant Museum at Mutant Museum on Twitter does uh, YouTube videos and there's a really fun kind of charismatic reading of the monster of Partridge Creek, which um, I think monster fans should know. I think cryptozoology people should know. It's a, it's an early story, relatively early story of a supposed living dinosaur um, in the northern parts of North America, if I remember correctly. And uh, this is a fun reading of it. So I'll put a link um, in the notes so you can go and check that one out while you're sending me on some fine coffee. Meanwhile, otherwise, other fun things that have happened... Oh yes, the good folks over at Folk Horror Revival um, were listening to recent episodes and the kind of emphasis on bordering on obsession with Arthur Conan Doyle and The Lost World. So that saga continues. You're not getting away without some of that. And they just posted on that um, they have a copy of something called Return to the Lost World, which is kind of a self-published sequel to The Lost World by someone called Nicholas Nye. And this is from 1991. And Folk Horror Revival says the original team reunite and head back to the plateau and they encounter Fawcett. <laughs> so he kind of fits into that world of kind of mystical, you know, explorers in weird South America at the dawn of the 20th century quite nicely. I've read in other places that this book goes pretty heavy on the spiritualism, which I guess is is right and good given the, given the, the, the circumstances. Uh, more Lost World interactions that were fun. Uh, Cameron McCormick, who's been playing a stormer on Twitter recently and just blowing my mind constantly with like, insanely in-depth cryptozoological stuff um, and making me feel quite inadequate. <laughs> he put out um, a link to a supposed sighting of a sea creature monster type thing. It's called the HMS Caesar sighting off the east coast of Ireland in either 1908 or 1910 or somewhere in between. And um, it's a crazy story in its own right. But uh, Richard Fallon reminds us that Arthur Conan Doyle himself was impressed by this story when it was published in December 1924 in Wide World magazine. A little bit too close for comfort there. And he thought that the, the guys were kind of chuckling at how ridiculous this story is um, and how ridiculous this creature is. But uh, Conan Doyle thought enough of this story to say, well, oh, you know, actually, I had my own uh, sea monster sighting and that this is why he first decided to announce that he had supposedly seen uh, an ichthyosaur or a plesiosaur, depending on when he said it, uh, on his honeymoon off the coast of Greece back in, I think, I want to say 1907, something like that. Much, much earlier anyway. And again, it's of interest to me because supposedly it happened before he wrote The Lost World, you know, seeing a cryptid himself. But he doesn't say anything about it until long after The Lost World. So, I mean, who who can say, right? And uh, almost finally, I was having a good chat with... Um, friend of the show Eddie Guimont recently and uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna give this quote with permission so we were talking about cryptozoology as as we do and I was kind of just saying like to me 
it represents a certain refusal to move on from some elements of the Victorian period, you know, a time when the world still seemed full of, ex, ex, you know, places to explore and mysteries to uncover for Europeans and, you know, a big playground for, for the Europeans who were kind of at the top of the old colonial pyramid. And uh, Eddie added some extra bits to that. He said, also a world where science and the paranormal can overlap, which was a huge thing in Victorian times, where amateurs can be renowned experts. And I think that is extremely, an extremely good observation, uh, you know, as, as to what things were like at that time, even though it was, you know, the various sciences were becoming more uh, professional, of course, at the time. But, you know, some of the great discoveries were made by amateurs. And I think this is the language that people still use today when they're trying to say, oh, you know, science won't listen to me with my idea. And he also says that the media was full of sensationalist and credulous uh, reporting. And I, I think those things have not changed very much. And if anyone has not seen his recent thread um, about a, a trip to the University of New Hampshire uh, looking for Betty and Barney Hill artifacts um, from the 1960s, and it's incredible, it's a great, great thread. I'll put a link to it. In the notes and if you're a ufo person if you're a ufo abduction person like if you're interested in that sort of thing there's some great stuff here and this is like you know lovely to see people doing good primary research and making me jealous into the bargain so that's where i'm going to leave it folks uh, hopefully we, you'll be here for the next time hopefully we won't have to mention faucet for a long time though i'm not going to guarantee that we're done with the lost world in fact i'm pretty much going to guarantee that we're not because i have some plans for more lost world stuff in the future anyway that will all have to wait so i'm gonna have to get up here from the from the wet grass because it's kind of getting dark and the dew is getting getting coming in and i'm gonna leave this here stream behind and we'll catch you next time so as always stay safe and thanks for listening we are certain that satanism exists it's the practice of evil and following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body.